My conversation today is with astrologer, occultist, and author Jamie Paul Lamb. Jamie's work at the intersection of magic, Freemasonry, and astrology has been informative as well as transformative of the contemporary study of all the aforementioned fields. His enthusiasm, ability to articulate complex ideas, and depth of research and understanding of these topics make his works essential for any serious student of esotericism. We caught up on some topics including music, the harmony of the spheres, the current re-emergence of esoteric traditionalism, and various ventures Jamie has recently been pursuing, some of which make him, in my estimation, one of the most intrepid practitioners in the public sphere today, as well as one of my favorite people to talk to. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'm Ike Baker, and this is the Arcanum Podcast. All right, man. So again, I want to thank you so much for uh, for coming on and for having a conversation with with me tonight. Uh, it's something I've really been looking forward to for a while now. So glad we could sync it up. Yeah, Ike, it's a pleasure. It's I really love the channel and what you're doing with it. So I, I'm really stoked for this uh, this conversation. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, so I guess I wanted to start off with uh your work um has has kind of taken on uh a very precise uh kind of scope at this point you're 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 very much so into um astrology particular uh hellenistic astrology i think you might even call it daimonic uh astrology um to a degree and i remember taking a course just a few months ago at the um institute for hermetic studies and uh, you gave that uh, astrology, uh, natal astrology, and and the diamond course, and it was super super interesting. And I had I had read a bunch of your work before then, and I just didn't know until that point how involved in astrology you really were. And so I, I guess I, the question I never got to ask was: Was there a particular event, book, teacher? experience that kind of inspired your esoteric studies in that direction well yeah so we'll go back um 11 12 years ago when i first started poking around freemasonry and uh right after i was raised a master master mason i had the good fortune of coming into a copy of uh robert hewitt brown's stellar theology and masonic astronomy so uh, previous to that, I had no real interest in astrology. In fact, I thought it was hippie garbage. You know, a lot of people like my mom liked astrology and she was a hippie. And, you know, you get these people like I'm a Leo or I'm a Sagittarius and this simplistic, just like um, really uh, just trite kind of uh perspective on it and now wait i don't want to bash anybody i'm not bashing modern astrology anyway but uh so that that had been my experience and then i i had a copy of robert hewitt brown's book which kind of was a uh, an astrological and astronomical and sort of cosmological interpretation of masonic ritual and 
I was familiarizing myself with Masonic ritual at that point, and it was perfect timing. I was two weeks after I was made a master Mason. I got a copy of that book, and it just blew my mind. You know, you know how uh, you ever see that film, The Sixth Sense, with Bruce? Oh Wilson? yeah. Yeah. So you know how you're watching that and then all of a sudden his ring falls off and then you realize, oh, my God, this guy's been dead this whole time. You know, like I had no idea that was going to happen. I was blown away when I saw it. Yeah. anyway. But yeah. I had I had that same feeling reading Robert Hewitt Brown, where it was like, what? Like the hieramic tragedy and how it fits and, you know, the astrological sort of underpinning of it. And uh I I had to put that book down many times and just pace back and forth trying to fathom the gravity of the these implications that he was laying down. So um, to get back to your question, like that's kind of the beginning of my astrological inquiry, although it wasn't serious until about maybe three years ago. Three years ago, I decided to specialize. You know, as many of us in occult circles, you end up with a very, very broad, but not so deep pond initially, you know, like everything is whatever is contained in Manly P. Hall's secret teachings of all ages for a minute there, just this shallow, but broad um, uh, kind of pond. But uh, in time, you end up, or I ended up um, kind of refining my perspective And, uh, you know, refining my areas of interest and what I thought was fundamental, at least from my perspective. And and I've come to think of astrology as being uh, this cosmic mechanism that supports magic. It supports alchemy. Like you're not going to be doing, say, paracelsian alchemy in the absence of planetary hours. You know, mm-hmm. so it's just really this um, and same thing with magic elections and things like that. And and just uh, the work with the daimon, like I've been getting into, you know, it's like um, this theurgical, this astro theurgical work is really like, you know, uh, its roots are in the cosmos, I think, or the the relationship, the sympathetic relationship between the macrocosmos and microcosmos. So, oh, and then you said, you said, what was there some sort of experience or some sort of like event? And um, there actually was. So about maybe three years ago, I was doing a lot of stargazing and uh, just observing naked eye observations And I finally got this feeling up to that point, I was sort of had kind of at least one foot in the psychological model of say magic, you know, where everything's kind of like a projection of, of your, you know, almost a Kabbalionistic kind of uh, perspective where everything's this mental projection and and it's all very Kantian, you know, and then all of a sudden, um, and it was all of a sudden, it was like a flash where I felt like um, how colossally hubristic it is for me to think that these planets in signs and houses have no inherent meaning and purpose of their own other than that, which I feel, you know, what I deem fit to bestow upon them. It just seemed like the most arrogant thing 
you know, and I was embarrassed. And that finally, like, um, just opened me up to this vast cosmic mechanism, which, uh, which is, like I told you, I'm Greek Orthodox, but that's my religion kind of, you know what I mean? Like, right. Yeah. It's all very cosmic and it had, it takes many different forms terrestrially, but uh, it's just where I've, where I'm at right now. And who knows, maybe this could change in a year. Yeah. I, I mean, first of all, that's, that's a beautiful sentiment to have. And in my experience, it's a species of, of true initiation. I think, um, to come to realizations like that, uh, I think a huge part of a huge part of what kind of holds a lot of practitioners back is this: they stay in this state of like I'm going to dabble because it's it's too much for me to really relinquish myself to to something that is utterly higher, utterly infinitely vaster than me. Um, it's it's because it's it's not a comfortable feeling all the time um but i think that really once you have that breakthrough it's like you there's just an understanding that you didn't have before you know it's 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 of greater depth and therefore greater consequence i feel like you can you're a better magician you're a better person sometimes because of it so that's that's really encouraging to hear yeah yeah and i'm not sure i'm really not sure what even kind of sequentially led up to that but it was, I, I like the way you put it as initiatory because it absolutely felt that way. There was a liminal space through which uh, I felt like I kind of passed at that point. I mean, it was palpable. Mm. Yeah. So now, how did you, were you always, I know you were, uh, you were a musician, right? Previously for a while. I mean, you still play. But but that's kind of like what you came up in. You were in punk rock, punk rock bands and stuff like that. Yeah, so I did a lot of music all through my life since I was uh, fourteen years old. I played bass in in a band, embarrassingly called Aborted Fetus. We were isn't that ridiculous? We were a uh, a hardcore type of group, kind of a hardcore thrash group, mm-hmm. and. Uh, had songs about Chernobyl and stuff like that. Typical, <laughs> typical eighties fair, imminent nuclear destruction and, and uh, all sorts of, you know, just these hardcore punker uh, stances on things. And, and uh, yeah. yeah, so th- that, uh, you know, developed into other interests in music, you know, and as I got better at my intru- instrument, I, you know, ended up playing a lot of jazz and right. um and i still play i'm kind of a weekend warrior but i've got a gigging lounge exotica uh band that i play guitar in and um i've been a an organist in masonic lodges for that's uh, awesome 10 10 or 11 years i've been playing that's organs. awesome uh, i'm master right now master of my lodge now but uh but my default position is organist yeah, I know. I know just also from from having a musical background um, that there's a lot of cross pollination in terms of like aesthetic and and the occult and stuff yeah. like that. Um, that's actually how I even became aware of of the occult through music. So I was wondering if that did that 
kind of like catalyzed your interest in that in this particular subject, the occult, the esoteric, or did that kind of develop um, outside of that context? Yeah, kind of outside. So they were sort of separate, but they ended up touching in certain places later, you know, so, um, so it was only later that I, you know, started seeking out things like the Graham Bond organization, or, you know, these other sort of um, explicitly occulty music, but really, I think the most, the most like occult, or let's say esoteric um, music I can think of is liturgical pipe organ music. I mean, it's just so, and I don't even know whether to classify it as a cult or esoteric, but the most metaphysically meaty, I suppose, if that's not a paradox, but um, just, you know, there's something about the organization of sound. There's something so magical, but also a craft about it. It's, it's so like, um, uh, it's so architectural, you know, in fact, I think it was Novalis or maybe Goethe who said uh, music is frozen architecture or wait, architecture is frozen music. You ever hear that? Frozen music. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's perfect. That's perfect. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So things like ratio, proportion, harmony, symmetry, balance, rhythm, et cetera, all these criteria by which we judge the beautiful, by which we judge the good, um, by which we judge the true. You know, these same criteria. And I think maybe that's the linchpin of the idea is like the the criteria that we apply to our experiences in occultism, magically, uh, alchemically, astrologically, are the same sort of, uh, they apply to music as well. So music is a perfect little test tube or a Petri dish or, an, or a sort of experiment. Um, right in which these vastly more cosmic ideas are are represented in microcosm, like the music of the spheres. And you get into um, Pythagoras and all these ideas about uh, celestial harmony and things. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, I, 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 uh, I, the first episode I did actually was with a really great musician um, from Asheville, from this area where, where I live in North Carolina. And, we, you know, we touched on the idea of the muses and things like that and these trance states that are almost kind of, they, they uh, are reminiscent of a kind of trance mediumship uh, <clears throat> to a degree. But I do think that there is, there's varying degrees of, I guess, like metaphysical fluency for, for a musician that is not as intentional as say when a magician is cultivating that kind of thing, but it, it's, it's almost like these training wheels. You know, I think that's why so many people that are involved with music, it's like, I've been using this part of my, this aspect of my psyche in this particular way for so long that um, to draw down inspiration and, and kind of just express something that is not expressible with words, right? I feel this way. I want you to feel it too. And you've been doing that for so long that it's just kind of just a few steps removed to start getting into ceremonial and, or, or other states where you're involving uh, psychism. Exactly. So it is a language as you were kind of alluding to, like there are times when my wife is like, what are you, I'll, I'll just absently walk over to this nylon string guitar that I have in the corner and I'll, play something and uh not a tune just kind of a 
you know, looking for something. She's like, what are you doing? Well, Mm. these are things that uh, can't be said in words. And this is the only language I know to express this particular species of idea. This is the only medium uh, that will, at this point for me, at the period of gestation of whatever idea it is, this is the only medium that will accept it at this point. So it's like, that's really cool. Like, it's yeah. really cool knowing that language as a musician that, you know, you know, the rules basically, and you know, uh, what works and, you know, you know, modal theory and things like this. So it's like, it's like to have recourse to that other language, which in some instances is probably the perfect way to express certain ideas. Yeah. And, and especially, I think uh, another thing that they have in common is, you know, like you're saying modal theories and things like there's a lot of music theory that you, you don't, you don't have to learn to play, but at a certain point, I feel like when you saturate yourself in that kind of a thing, even though it's, it can be technical and it can be tedious uh, it just allows you more freedom to just let the music pour out of you. It's like, you don't even have to think I have so much freedom that this is just, this is part of me now, you know, even yeah. though I put in all that work. So like, like traditions that we're involved in where, where th- there's a lot of rote memorization. And, and uh, I would say that, you know, there's a lot of people that don't understand why, you know, we have to go to those kinds of, I guess they would consider them extremes just to do magic. Uh, but, um, you know, I would probably say that the analogy just holds true. The more you put into it, the more you're going to get out of it. Cause really it's, it's a language, right. And I don't language becomes a part of you because it's constantly expressing you. Like I I'm sitting here talking to you and I don't have to like, look at the alphabet to do that. You know, it's just, it's just happening. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's, and it informs our thoughts, right? Obviously, that's been talked about vis-a-vis linguistics and things like that. Like, I was just talking to somebody about this, how, uh, take the German language. The reason why you have a Wittgenstein or a Schopenhauer or a Nietzsche or a Heidegger or a Hegel, et cetera, et cetera. The reason why you have this is because their language is so orderly. You know, like, for instance, the word, I'm not sure if this is true, but let's say, for example, the word for doorknob is the round thing that you turn and opens the door. And it's like this, you know, nine or ten syllable long consonant choked monstrosity but it's so mechanical it's so it's and and german engineering i think is an expression of that as well and german music bach you know all basically everybody from a certain period um buxtehuda my favorite you know those two being my favorite organists and they were organists that's what that's the instrument that they were proficient on but uh but yeah so um so the uh the uh where was i going with that the um we're talking about how it's a language and and uh you can see that it influences thoughts too it's not just a one-way street it's kind of a two-way yeah the linguistic thing so it's like and the same thing with greek you know the reason i think part of the reason why you had such clarity in aristotle and plato for example is because well look at look at like the word time we have the word time and we just variously apply it sometimes very loosely 
whereas in Greek, or at least ancient Greek, you have um, you have chronos for sequential clock time. You have kairos for the right time, like right. The, like almost an electional species of time. And then you have ion, right, which is this sort of precessional um, galactic time. So there's this gradation uh, and it's in the language, you know, same thing with love. Love is such a slippery word in English, but when you break it down or parse it out into eros, philos, agape, etc., you get these nuances that are not available to us necessarily in English. Yeah, and it, it, in in some ways, it, it 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 can make it hard, I think, for people who don't understand. Uh, I guess romance languages, uh, maybe perhaps because I kind of find that there's that there's that fluidity that in in speech in in a lot of those languages. Um, it, it kind of makes it hard to translate and parse exactly what we're talking. You know what was being said. Um, so it's it's always interesting to 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 see the the differences in that. You know, it's it's the same way that um, the same way that people. I guess in, interpret music differently and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and what kind of stylistic things that they prefer they enjoy. But um, I know that you still play and the specifically, I, you know, I, I checked out some of the Yakme Kaldia stuff that you've done. And it's, it's anytime I'm writing, it's on for, you know, it's in, it's, it's somewhere on the playlist. It's excellent. Um, but how do, how do music and magic right now, how do they interact with one another in terms of your personal practice? Is that a thing that, uh, that you spend time with? Absolutely. So about uh, two years ago from astrology money that I'd just been putting in a PayPal account, every time I do like a natal reading or something like that, I just sock it away in this, um, this uh, PayPal account. And um And one day I was like, well, I knew that I wanted a harmonium because uh, you can take it anywhere. It's a bellows operated reed instrument. So it's like a little organ. It's a reed organ, essentially, but with a bellows on the back of it. So um, if you're not familiar, it's used a lot in Indian classical. You can pull out stops that give you drone, that give you drones. So you can play against a drone. So there's this nice sort of modal thing about it where you can, you know, get into the intervallic relationships against this tonic that is steady. And um, I ended up buying one of those with astrology money to use in my astrological work. So um, and what I ended up working on was uh, the intervallic relationships as they're expressed in like um, aspects in astrology. So uh, when you see any sort of astrological chart, the planets are arrayed on the, the zodiac, on the ecliptic, and they're usually separated by various distances. And some of these distances are or degrees of arc. Some of these are harmonious, um, nice aspects like a trine or a sextile you know and those have a relationship to intervallic uh, 
relationships in music, right? You've get you get squares, you get oppositions, and opposition like an opposition, 180 degrees would be a flat five interval. You know how, how dissonant that interval is, mm-hmm. and, and it it matches the um, the opposition in astrology, which is a dissonant aspect if you have two planets in opposition 180 degrees apart they are they are not in a harmonious relationship there's problems there there's miscommunication etc so it's a hard aspect what they would call colloquially but it's also a you know a very unpleasant musical interval so they they're pretty much one for one i mean it's 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 all kind of of a piece. So I found that um, getting uh, this harmonium and starting to work on these correspondences, you know, s- certain tones with certain planets or certain chords with certain planetary arrangements or or certain modes like the seven church modes. Let's see, Ionian, Dorian, Lydian, Phrygian, um, Aeolian, Locrian. Uh, Ionian. No, I think I missed Mixolydian. Uh, Mixolydian, yeah, Mixolydian is yeah. the last. So, um, so yeah, you get these seven church modes, these plagal modes or authentic and plagal modes, and they can correspond. To, you know, according to certain tables, they correspond to the planets and various permutations. So, I was working on a lot of that for a while and reading a lot of uh, Jocelyn Godwin, who's done tremendous work on the uh, harmony of the spheres and elucidating some of this Pythagorean heritage of music in philosophy, essentially. So, um, I got a lot of mileage out of his work and put together some conclusions of my own and some insights of my own and developed a system that I really like that I can now play a person's natal chart, let's say. You know, I offer it as a service on my website, actually, where, you know, I will give you a five-minute recording of what the sound of your natal chart is, which... uh, I'm surprised I don't get more of those gigs, actually. I've I've only done like five of them over the last two years. Really? See, that's that's, I don't really geek out over stuff, you know. Um, I'm uh, but that is awesome. That is like ridiculously just mind blowing. Especially, it's like it it kind of almost goes back to what you were saying earlier about that moment that you had stargazing and this kind of realization. We take music for granted you know when it's like this insane miracle you know it's this miraculous experience right because music doesn't happen in the external world it happens in the mind right you know which is it's like we we take it for granted that kind of application is just that's crazy to me that sounds excellent exactly so air pressure waves that we're creating yes it happens in the mind it's it's part of our sensation and perception Right. This this chain of of uh, this causal chain of events that make music. But uh, there's also the um, you know, I would argue, though, that it does happen in nature, but it just happens via uh, different media. So like we said about architecture, so music does happen. And in fact, 
in the context of the medieval seven liberal arts, when they meant music, so it goes the quadrivium is arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. Mm-hmm. When they got to music, um, they were broadly talking about harmonia. You know, they were mm-hmm. talking about music that is not necessarily aural, A-U-R-A-L, I think is how you spell it. Right. Not necessarily sonic. You know, music is something that is in architecture, that it is in, let's say, woodworking, or it is in cooking. You yeah, know? Ratio, ratio, really. Yeah. I mean, when, when you boil it all down to, at least in its in its Pythagorean sense, it's it's the interaction of ratios, which... Yeah. um. That's such a cool idea, man, just to to do that. That's awesome. Yeah, painting Um, and in magic, you know. Uh, Well, here's another project, a sneak peek at this project we've started working on. I don't know if I told you about this before, but but we've picked me and Ben Williams, um, a brother from uh, Colorado, are doing this long-term project where we're we're reciting and recording the Orphic hymns at astrologically elected times. Like for instance, we just captured Jupiter who had a really great um, placement only for like a day, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, he dipped back into Pisces. We were able to capture this, uh, this moment, you know, and I recorded the, um, I forget which mode goes with Jupiter. It might be Lydian, but uh, I record. No, it's one of the hypo modes. It's a plagal mode, hypo Lydian maybe. But I recorded this seven-minute improvisation based on the modal and intervallic material uh, for Ju- for Jupiter while Jupiter was in a very dignified position in the zodiac. And uh, at that precise time, Ben was in Colorado in his great British accent, he's from England, in his great British accent, he was, he did several takes of the recitation of the Thomas Taylor translation of the Orphic hymn to Jupiter. And so we're doing that for every planet. It's going to take a while because if you miss a good election, like let's say with Jupiter, if you miss, if we would have missed that very night, we would have had to wait until Jupiter was in, um, I think he'd have to be all the way in cancer before we could get a good election. Sometimes you have to wait t- 10, 12 years yeah, for, for a good election. <clears throat> so we've got a good Saturn one coming up in case anybody wants to know if you're doing any Saturn work, there's a great Saturn election coming up and I'll tell you Ooh, when it is. Do tell. Do tell. So there's a really great Saturn election and it is, this is in Phoenix, Arizona, so adjust to your longitude and latitude, but uh, 8.09 a.m. on Saturday, January 28th. Saturday, January 28th, so eight days from the time of this recording. At 8.09 a.m., there is uh, a particularly strong and dignified Saturn placement. And it'll be the last one for a long time because Saturn... Um, his orbital period is like 29 years, basically. So yeah, yep, you're not yep. going to get good elections for Saturn for a long while. You know, that's incredible. I, I love the fact that you guys um, utilize the, uh, the Orphic hymns too, man. Um, <clears throat> it's just, it's incredible to me, especially, you know, I'm, 
I'm of Greek heritage myself. It's it's just incredible to me how much right because I guess in the mainstream astrology and magic it kind of goes through these phases. Um, and right now we seem to be in this kind of like neo-Hellenistic revival where um, it's coming out of academia too, which is mm-hmm. really cool. It's really cool. Um, just lots of the neo-Platonic stuff getting re-explored, brought to the fore. Guys like you, guys like Chris Brennan. Uh, D.D. Newman. You know, right. And uh, Demetra George, just oh, yeah. the, the Hellenistic astrology stuff, oh, popularizing right. it. So, so. What do you think? What do you think some of the causal, you know, uh, triggers for that might be? What's well, I think I can express it microcosmically by saying my myself in my studies, like for instance, I'm taking a Renaissance astrology course under Chris Warnock right now. So, um, I find myself reading, uh, like I read, um, Tilliard's Elizabethan world picture just to get myself in that zone historically and I've gone back to some of the Perso-Arabic medieval stuff and Guido Bonatti and these astrologers from around that time but now because of that I felt like I had to go back to Aristotle and I've been on an Aristotle kick for the last realistically three days you know this is how these cycles kind of you know work for me and then I keep doubling back and I always tell myself I'm I'm getting to the answer of the the answer to your question but uh I always keep telling myself yeah you got to buttress that with all this stuff that came before so I think there's some of that like um where in the magical occult um esoteric milieu just generally academic and practitioner sides of things um where there is this traditionalist kind of movement, definitely in astrology, it's going on. And I think some of it has to do with this need to um, uh, buttress our understanding with a proper historical context and a proper uh, theoretical, a solid theoretical basis, you know? So as opposed to the loosey goosey kind of last hundred years of theosophical new agey kind of, and again, not knocking that, but that, that there was not so much, I guess it's perennialism is what I'm trying to say. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I find that even in myself, I remember, so like two nights ago, I was giving a lecture on zoom and somebody jokingly said like um something to the effect of like if you ask one if you ask him one question uh you're going to get 30 answers uh and and it it really is kind of like that almost like wikipedia tab thing it, you know and i see it a lot of a lot of people my age also kind of like coming up um uh around the same time into magic um yeah that's exactly it i mean it's like i need to I need to know and I need to feel like I have a firm foundation um, because I have such a, you know, nominalist training by disposition, right? I grew up in in this time, in this place, through the university system and stuff like that, that I, you know, I know that there's a component of this that, you know, they're called mysteries for a reason, mm-hmm. so, right? Because any question, even if you're a scientist, any question 
you know, you can only, you can only have answers for so many questions. Eventually you, you get to a point where it's just, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah. But, but the, the theory behind it really does um, it expands it for me. It makes it exciting. It makes me feel confident in, in what I'm doing and it, it makes things make, um, make more sense. I think uh, a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. So it's one of the things I like about the Golden Dawn tradition is its structure that um, you do have the outer order grades, these elemental grades where you um, where you're exposed to uh, Kabbalah, Hermeticism, some sort of Egyptian ideas. Um, You know, you're you're exposed to geomancy, astrology, alchemy, and you just get this broad kind of uh, training. You're exposed to the um, pseudo-Dionysian angelic hierarchies, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's woven into this really great system. Um, So I think and you that's where you first really see the fruition of all these correspondences that had been coming together for years and years before then. And then they sort of bottleneck at the golden dawn for some reason, mm-hmm. you know, um, the cipher manuscripts, I think were the, that galvanizing, um, uh, element that was needed to really just, and then Mathers of course, writing the ritual right. and putting it in this quasi Masonic body, um, but but to see all to see the collation of these ideas and the syncretism come to a full crystallization um and maybe that has something to do with again the new traditionalism is that uh maybe we're undoing that could be a maybe maybe we're specializing um you know in an effort to extricate something that has been um muddied somehow yes you know maybe and i'm just thinking this through right now i didn't have a prepared answer for this but maybe we are sort of maybe it's the opposite of where i was initially going with this and in that our traditionalism may be this isolation of the constituent parts of the tradition that we've inherited as modern or postmodern magicians let's say Mm -hmm. you know that that we that we necessarily now have to go back and sort of contextualize these things on their own and isolate them and and uh, refine them as one would in an alchemical operation right you separate and coagulate and yeah, I think I think it's I think it's um especially if you're a student of history or at all interested in it it's I mean it's it's such a fallacy to believe that um you know the scholars and academics and educated people the great minds of the past because it was before our time that it was somehow misinformed uh in a way where it's it's not worth looking at or talking about anymore and when when you go back and you start researching some of these peoples and these and you start realizing how much of what we inherited just in terms of civilization is from these minds yeah and you know you start to realize that like you know there's got to be something there these people were still brilliant regardless of whether or not they had access to a modern sec science uh you know scientific vernacular or or um 
or technology. But but I think it's it's really interesting. One of the one of the things that I had to I had to figure out was how astrology made sense to me because I was I was kind of like you. I didn't I I was like this all has to be some sort of psychological projection and I didn't really get it. And to be honest with you, like I didn't even right i've i've gone through the the golden dawn you're doing charts by hand and stuff like that over and over and over like high volume um and i still didn't practice until um until after the your course actually uh believe it or not i just i didn't feel confident until until i had the that kind of basic how you delineate a chart that uh that you gave us that i i i became much more confident and started doing them regularly yeah you know you were talking about science and the kind of um academic perspective maybe uh and how that relates to this practitioner perspective and uh i was reading in i just finished god's philosophers by james hannam god's philosophers and it's uh basically the history of medieval science and how it informed the renaissance and how you know of course they dip heavily into scholasticism and aquinas and before you know aristotle and that aristotelian kind of transmission but uh it's interesting how um how much worldview informs these things you know and and how like let's say for freemasonry um an elias ashmole or an Ebenezer Sibley, you know, these early speculative accepted Masons, Mm -hmm. um, did, like Elias Ashmole was an astrologer. He was also William Lilly's patron. He supported William Lilly, the eminent British astrologer. And it wasn't unusual for them to think in terms of the great chain of being, for example. Mm -hmm. It, It was, in fact, what was on deck. And same thing when you read Shakespeare, Tennyson, Milton, all of these people understood that that the sublunary sphere was composed of these four elements and they were in a constant war of change and corruption and generation and that there were seven um, etheric planetary spheres that concentrically enveloped one another and beyond them was the sphere of the fixed stars and the zodiac against which they moved and beyond that was the prima mobile, the unmoved mover. Right. So, so God was there and sent sent his emanations through the stars, through the stellar sphere, and then kind of like as one would send a ball bearing in one of those pin games, you know, coming mm-hmm. down where it t- kind of tumbles through the pins. Um, that emanation coming, stellar emanation coming from the prima mobile, and then kind of knocking around the planets and taking on whatever characteristics or qualities and then finally puncturing the sublunary sphere and and turning you know made manifest in our uh sphere of our elemental sphere of of change and corruption so and magic to me i mean magic look at agrippa's three books look at the way that they're organized so right yeah natural magic celestial Celestial. magic super celestial magic or angelic magic so they are literally that that cosmology so um so i think that's another thing that i think is super important is getting a handle on even if you don't believe in that cosmological model um which i could argue that 
it's still valid, even in the post-Copernican uh, world, right? Um, even in this relativistic kind of whatever big bangy thing we have going on. I don't even know what you call mm-hmm. it, but uh, <laughs> I could argue that um, it still makes sense because the earth is the locus of consciousness. We are earthlings. Right. Astrology is an earthly art. You know, the perspective of observation is from the earth. Uh, the planets apparently move you know on the ecliptic they rise in the east diurnally culminate in the south set in the west and that model is there it's an experiential model it's there and um and even things like retrograde like i for one like the type what they call the tychonic cosmology which is tycho brahe's cosmology in that the 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 sun has mercury and venus going around it so when the so the sun's doing like this if you can see (laughs) you know with mercury and venus going around it so that's why you get these uh epicycles and deference and equience and all these things that that ptolemy had to invent um to make sense out of the math you know but uh but yeah oh one last thing about worldview why i brought up masonry is that uh we well we talk about astrology alchemy and magic as if they are they are esoteric they are decidedly eso western esoterica basically right or whatever esoterica they are occult arts they are hermetic arts they are esoteric well before the enlightenment a very unfortunately named movement or or inaccurately named movement before the um enlightenment that was just science like before astrology was cleaved from astronomy before alchemy was uh, torn off of of chemistry and thrown away uh mm-hmm. before before magic and technology were were um ripped asunder you know when when we lived or people lived in an enchanted cosmos that was the marriage of the quantifiable and the qualifiable now we're just left with this positivistic nihilistic uh sort of world of weights and measures a dead clockwork that is uh, you know disenchanted and um it's that to me is one of the sadder things going on in the modern worldview is this disenchantment i i couldn't agree with you more um and perfectly said the 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 biggest thing in in you know a lot of people come to things like the golden dawn and you start out you get involved with these magic groups and a good percentage in my experience have been there because they they want me to or they want something they want an experience they want an order they want a, a secret to be given to them that helps them kind of believe in everything that is magical you know uh because how do you orient orient yourself to stuff like this coming out of our secular culture? It's all movie magic. It's Harry Potter wand waving. You don't really understand, but you know, there's this idealism in in order to pursue magic to a degree. And, you know, other than, other than telling people like, I can't make you believe anything, you know, you don't, don't come to these orders trying to, find belief or find faith but you know 
after you get through that kind of caveat, it's like, well, you have to learn, you have to relearn to trust you vet, but trust your subjective experience, right? We're constantly outsourcing the locus of authority mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. rather than you, you have to be able to, right? You don't die with the facts. You die with your life experience, you know, and at the end of the day, you, you have to be able to, to trust that. And I think that's part of re-enchanting the world to a degree, you know, forming your own one-to-one relationships with the things around you, instead of making these a priori judgments like, oh, that can't happen because according to this piece of paper, it's not supposed to be able to happen. Right. Well, we're, we're, you know, for better or worse, we're reaching a crisis, uh, you know, and that crisis is going to have to resolve one way or another. And we're pretty much there. I mean, we're, you know, read the papers, uh, watch the news, whatever, uh, the political, the political milieu, et cetera. I mean, it's clear that we are in a post truth society at this point, you know? So, um, and that's, that's one of the big, that's a transcendental truth, beauty, and goodness. Right. So all these things, and same thing with like subjectivity in the arts. It's like, that bugs me so much is when people are like, uh, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder or art is subjective. And it's like fucking not really. No, you know, no. <laughs> there, there are objective criteria by which we judge what's beautiful, you know, and the same thing with the good and the true, there's this moral relativism. That's another one. That's uh, part of this, this um, crisis, you know, yeah. I guess it's a, a front of crises that we're up against, but we do, do we not find, you know, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, that all of a sudden there's this explosion of occultism. Right. Why do you think that is? I mean, it's yeah. pretty clear why that is, because it's a response to the crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's and it is it is as as it has been said before by by several others. It really is uh, at its core. It's a there's a meaning crisis here, you know. Yeah for for sure but um yeah you know i mean it's it takes it takes a lot of work to to divest your the modern consciousness uh of all the you know the i guess for lack of a better word uh superfluities mm-hmm. that 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 are just piled on top of you but i definitely find i i have definitely found that astrology has has really right something that mystified me for years astrology is definitely kind of it's pulling me even further than i thought i could go Mm -hmm. um and it's it's been a really a really beautiful experience um and i know that you're actually you're you're working on a manuscript i don't know if you want to talk about it but if you want to maybe give a teaser or something like that if not no i could talk about it i'm i'm in fact um my whole like a synopsis of my thesis is being published in the mountain astrologer in the, in the cancer 2023 issue. So this summer um, it's, I think I called that little synopsis. um, Well, a 3000 word synopsis, I called it uh, um, daimonic astrology and uh, 
and something else. I forget what I called it, but I thought that was a flashy kind of name, demonic astrology. That's what it, you know, in fact, if you, here's something that's kind of cool. If you look, if you Google demonic astrology, like in quotations, I'm the only thing that comes up. Nobody has <laughs> bit that yet. So I, so I need to buy that domain name right away because I yes. think, so I'm the only thing that comes up, but um, anyway, and you know, I've been blogging about it. I've been talking about it. And I'm, as you said, I'm working on this manuscript. So the idea is this, if you want me to just kind of, uh, you know, spell that out real quick. Um, the idea is that according to Plato's myth of air, the soul stands outside of the cosmos, outside of causality, outside of fate. And the pre-incarnate human human soul is coupled with a daimon. And the daimon is a tutelary um, sort of guiding entity, a psychopomp and a mystagogue. And the daimon uh, conducts the, the soul through the mysteries of birth, life, death, and the afterlife on its way down from this lofty place outside of the planets and fixed stars of the Zodiac, um, the soul takes on characteristics corresponding to each of the seven planets. So at Saturn, it takes on characteristics at Jupiter, at Mars, and, and depending on the placement of those planets at that time that the soul is making its, its, uh, catabatic descent, um, it is taking on characteristics um, proportionate to the condition of that planet. So let's say Mars, for example, let's say the soul is at the sphere of Mars on its way down to incarnation in the sublunary sphere. If Mars is fortunately placed, it will give good significant his best significations which might be bravery courage and valor if mars is neutrally placed just sort of okay he might give his neutral significations you know middling significations like uh separation and and energy expansion or something like that um mm -hmm. if he is uh if he is poorly placed you know, ill dignified, then the soul gets negative significations from Mars, which would be like violence, anger, aggression, etc. So now multiply that by seven, and you see what happens to the soul, according to Plato, according to Macrobius, according to Porphyry, um, you see what um, you see what happens to the soul on its way down as it collects what Porphyry called astral garments mm -hmm. and the soul is clothed in character uh, and character as Heraclitus tells us is fate. Character is fate. People tend to act within the confines of their inherent character. So if your inherent character in this model, this daimonic model, if your inherent character is sort of, uh, composed of this reduction of planetary significations, then you are likely to act within the confines of that character profile. Hence, mm -hmm. natal astrology's predictivity, because uh, the proficient astrologer can look at the natal chart, see the condition of your planets at the time of birth, you know, figure out whether they're, um, you know, positive, neutral, or negative, 
and then kind of come up with a composite character profile, essentially, mm-hmm. not to psychologize it. Um, but there is like provisions for psychological astrology going all the way back to the beginning of the art. So that's not a new thing. That's like not that didn't start with Dane Rudyar um, right. and, and Alan Leo. But uh, anyway, so so that's and if character is fate, you know, character is fate, because if people do act within the confines of their character, then you can sort of make predictions based on their their planetary characteristics. So that's part of the battle. The soul has reached the sublunary sphere where it is subject to um, high Marmini. It is subject to Tyche. It is subject to, um, you know, fate, fortune, destiny, you know, etc. But in order to be liberated from fate, the soul must travel back up. Right. Cosmic return. So this is where the daimon comes into, um, comes back into the picture because, uh, you know, you see this in Plotinus, you definitely see it in Porphyry, you see it in Plato, right? All the way back where um, this connection with the daimon or a personal genius, or a higher self, or a guardian angel, etc., or a perfect nature, as it's called in the Picatrix, the native subject of a natal chart hooks back up with this daimon who can take it on the the anagogic ascent back up, the anabatic anagogic ascent back through the spheres, and um, through astrotheurgy essentially right through planetary propitiation through um you know working with uh stellar configurations and elections and you know and all manner of uh of magic right so like i was talking about that uh orphic hymn project we're working on this is why because normally when people do planetary magic They'll get, you know, a white candle for the moon. They'll get, uh, you know, an orange candle for Mercury, a red candle for Mars, whatever. And they'll pick the appropriate day. Mars on a Tuesday at sunrise is a martial hour on a martial day. You burn your red candle. Uh, you recite the, Orph- the Orphic hymn to Mars. And you listen to um, Gustav Holst's Mars right? That's what everybody does. So everybody's been listening to Holst, every planetary magician, anybody who works with planetary magic has been listening to Gustav Holst this whole time. And I will tell you that I don't believe that those are, are um, theoretically in, or I don't believe that he's using the proper modal correspondences. I don't even believe he has a lot of the general tenor of those planets. Right. Uh, certainly not in key or timbre but um so the whole impetus for this project of recording the orphic hymns is to provide uh planetary magicians planetary astrotheurgists with a real loaded elected battery of musical power you know it's amazing you burn the burn the right fumigation listen to the right music recite the hymn with your heart i mean get into it 
burn the candle, you know, do all the stuff, stack the synthomata, mm-hmm. the symbola and the synthomata. And, and you're essentially erecting this ladder, right? And then work with the daimon. And then the daimon will, you know, there's ways to get, as you know, from the class that I did, um, there's ways to derive the name of this entity. There's ways to derive its planetary affiliation, you know? And once you get all these pieces, then the the work happens, this theurgical work. I can go on and on about this. I, I, tried, yeah, no. to, I tried to make it short. No, it's, it's amazing. Actually, what you just said about that whole thing, it reminds me of exactly why it pays to be <clears throat> like, uh, I guess, quote unquote, formally or classically trained ceremonialist, right? Because it's an idea that like, yeah, Holst probably sat with some of the, his ideas of the planets and who knows, right? Maybe, maybe his output was affected by the his character, the disposition of the planets as filtered through sure. his microcosmic experience, mm-hmm. right? And he puts something out there and that says this is definitively Mars, but it's it's Mars through holes. Whereas if you're a classically or, or formally trained magician, you can you can sort of attenuate or, or focus and hone in and create this like this is not it's not it's free of any of that kind of um, uh, dilutement or permutation. We know what these correspondences are. We know through, you know, uh, tabulation, through experience, they've been hand, they're time tested. These correspondences work. So it's just going to add that oomph to everything. It's going to be a battery of power. And for anybody that has listened to my, you know, somewhat maybe salty sounding rants about why you need to get into, uh, you know, this kind of, of, of ceremonial, I like the way that you, that you were saying it stacking it, it, because it's, it's the world of a difference, you know, it's the difference between, um, well, I don't want to make any negative comparisons, but it, that is theurgy. What you're talking about is theurgy, right? Yeah, it's in the books. I mean, you could, yeah, these correspondences, and it it doesn't stop with Plotinus and Iamblichus. You know, you see it in Ficino. Um, you see it in, um, it. well, you see it in Christopher Warnock. This is somebody who's alive right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Me and you, you know, this is a living tradition. Yeah. This theurgical tradition is, is alive, you know, and we've no it's all over the gd what do you think we're doing in the gd when we're working with our higher genius or the genius of the temple we're animating statues like they did four thousand years ago in egypt right you know yeah yeah and i mean even even in like the foundational documents of the flying rolls i mean the word theurgy or theurgia it's referenced so many times and I, i i i'm pretty sure it's it's either westcott or mathers but one of them says like that's what you're here to do. You're here to do theurgy. That's the purpose of the, of, of the GD is theurgy. Right. <laughs> and, and it's, I mean, largely daimonic under another name. It's just genius. This work with the genius is work with the daimon. It's the same entity. Right. You know? That's, that's how, I mean, that's because even in, even when you see, you see some of the, the translations of, of, of Plato's Republic uh, myth of her, you you see the word not not diamond they didn't leave the word diamond in it says you know he shall you um you you shall not be paired with your genius 
You right. will pick, you will appoint your genius. So that, that word was the actual translation that they used to, to translate the word diamond. So it's, it's all right there. Right. Yeah. Plain as day. So reconstructing that mechanism, I think is my project right now. It's not my project. I mean, it's personally, it's my project that I'm doing, but it's like our project. I mean, we're all doing that. And maybe this is another tributary to that, that urge of that pull of traditionalism, you know, that, that we find this, uh, you know, Hellenistic, um, Greco-Roman kind of uh, uh, pull again, you know, because now we need the real stuff now that we're at this crisis. We're at this crisis, as we've discussed, you know, and it's like the difference between the magic that we may have inherited in the, say, mid-20th century and this magic today is the difference between a Tylenol 4 and a syringe full of heroin, you know. I love that. That's excellent. That's excellent. So there's there's a couple of um there's a couple of questions that are pretty stock for when I do the 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 podcast interviews and I ask particularly two questions of everybody. The um the first one is I want to know how you personally experience magic. How does it how does it come through to you? What does it look like? Okay, so Magic, it's reminding me of something I recently read in Greer, um, Sources of Magical Power. I forget what it was exactly called. It was a piece that he wrote for Austin Coppock's The Celestial Art Anthology, and he wrote about sources of magical power. And my source changed, as I discussed a couple of years ago, you know, my source became um, sort of uh, uh, celestialized, you know, so... Magic for me is um, is not so much – magic for me is the theurgical variety, not so much magia or, or, or goetia. You know, mm-hmm. it's become more thir- theurgia, you know, mm-hmm. so there's – so there's more, um, it's definitely astrological for me. That's just what I'm working with right now. And I, I keep saying, oh, astrology, this and that. And, you know, but uh, there's a reason for that. I mean, that's just where I'm at the last couple of years. And I'm getting a lot of mileage, you know, a lot of results, a lot of like um, a real visceral connection with uh, the world and its events and phenomena and its relationship to the cosmos that to me is that feeling that i had that i told you about that i shared with you that you know this um embarrassment of my arrogance you know in the Mm -hmm. presence of something so mighty and vast you know Mm -hmm. and and i brought up greer because sources of magical power how it's been psychological astral elemental you know it's it always gets the the locus of magic sort of moves or has moved throughout history so um so mine's heading back towards the prima mobile you know Mm -hmm. the unmoved Mm -hmm. mover the uncaused cause that place beyond um beyond fate um you know, liberated from this sort of uh, generation and corruption. 
Yeah. And I mean, that we're talking about the times that we're living in and the crisis and stuff like that. And it almost seems like that's the only way to go. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> the, the, the other question that I always ask is, so in, in any, in any um, kind of media, I prefer books, but so would you care to list three books, uh, blogs, courses, YouTube channels, whatever that uh, anybody listening to that you would uh, to this podcast, you would recommend that they check this out to to kind of get oriented or, or acquainted with some of the things that we've spoken about tonight? Sure. Um, quick grab would be Dorian Greenbaum's The Daimon in Hellenistic Astrology. But good luck with that, because it's if you can find it, it's two hundred and fifty dollars at the at the cheapest. And it's it's a Brill title. Okay, now uh, makes sense. Yeah. A a (laughs) fat hardcover. I've got a copy, an astrological student of mine or a client wasn't even a student, a client of mine gave it to me, you know, just gave me this book. So uh, came out and I want to say twenty. 13 or something like that. It could have even been 2016, but Dorian Greenbaum, the daimon in Hellenistic astrology was great. Um, another one. Well, of course, okay. A, a sort of keystone is um, William Lilly's Christian astrology, 1646. You're likely going to get a classic reprint or you know where all the s's are f's the facsimile copy yeah yeah that's what i have but believe me you get used to that that old typeset very quickly yeah like Mm -hmm. those s's and f's it's not a big deal after like four or five sentences you're acclimated so Mm -hmm. um it's three volumes and you can get them in one i it's so handy for me it's right here like i Mm -hmm. have this book around me um quite a bit now i get cheap classic reprints and kessingers and these sort of things because i destroy books i'm terrible with books i write in them i have so much marginalia and highlighting and you know i'm terrible to books so i never buy expensive books Mm -hmm. um so there's two let's see a good third one might be um well, let me nod to my astrology teacher right now, uh, Christopher, and it's very fitting for what we've been talking about, Christopher Warnock's Secrets of Planetary Magic, where he lays out essentially what we've been talking about, because that's, he's squarely in our tradition, you know, and awesome. um, so Secrets of Planetary Magic by Christopher Warnock, uh, Christian Astrology by William Lilly, and The Daimon and Hellenistic Astrology by Dorian Greenbaum. Awesome. Yeah, we've, we've talked quite a bit um, about astrology and um, exploring that from a tra- traditional uh, standpoint. So I guess at this point, um, you could mention some of the things that you're up to. I know that uh, for anybody that's kind of hyped up about astrology at this point and maybe wants to get a step further, you're giving a, a natal astrology course again, right? Yes. So I'm, I'm through the Institute of Hermetic Studies, which is headed up by Mark Stavish, you know, a brilliant guy. Look him up if you don't know him. I'm sure you already, well, I'm, I know you know him, but uh, the Institute of Hermetic Studies, um, 
and he's uh, he actually put me on the faculty. So I'm the uh, the um, I forget what he called me, something astrology, something astrologer. I'm not sure what, but uh, anyway, Institute of Hermetic Studies and the course. Um, oh, the course is going to be called Ganethleology, um, something like Introduction to Natal Astrology, because Ganethleology is the proper, Ganethleology, you do the Greek, it's like Ganethleology, <laughs> um, but Gen, G-E-N, like Genesis, right. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's that's coming up. I can tell you. Oh, and I've got one other thing I'll tell you about at, that the Institute of Hermetic Studies is planning on doing uh, at my behest. So I, call, I I had this idea and I called up Mark Savish and I was like, you know, what's something cool that we should do is uh, I'll tell you in a second. But uh, that starts in. The astrology course starts. In, uh, that was my next question. When when are they? Uh, March fourteenth is when the natal astrology course starts. March fourteenth, and that is a um, that is a uh, Tuesday. So it's going to be every Tuesday for six Tuesdays in a row. Um, so that's that's project number one at uh, the Institute of Hermetic Studies that I'm involved in. My second project is. Uh, I called up Mark Stavish and I was like, what if we were to do a, um, a course on Agrippa's three books, you know, where one per, where one person takes the first book, one person takes the second book, that'd be me. And somebody takes the third book. Mark would take the third book. Like, so we would get somebody to do the first book. Maybe you, why don't you hit him up? Or I could talk to him about you. You should be doing that. Sure, man. I mean, I, I, I actually, I, I made my own annotations of all three of his books, but by the time I had gotten to the last one, I was a little, I was a little tired. So, I mean, the, the, the natural magic book is fully annotated by me. So yeah, I would love to do that. Yeah, I'll hook you guys up or you're in touch with him already. Just tell him I told you about the project and I'll do the same. I'll text him and be like, hey, I just talked to Ike Baker. About, yeah, <laughs> um, perfect. About, about it. So anyway, that's in the formative stage stages. So but we're talking about middle of the year or maybe later part of 2023 doing the Agrippa awesome. course. How's that sound? Pretty cool, huh? That is a dream, dude, because most people just sit there in their studies like you and I and sh- suffer through it. So it'd be amazing to have that kind of foundation. Yeah. That's actually, that's exciting to hear about, man. Yeah. And awesome. it's such a great, it's such a great, I mean, it's a comprehensive course, yeah. you know, like Agrippa's three books are the comprehensive course. I mean, he was, he was down with all the Neoplatonica, all the Hermetica. I mean, he had the whole edifice constructed. He had the proper worldview because yeah. what was he um, mid 16th century? You know, yeah. he didn't even know our positivism. He had no clue how, uh, how much would go astray with our nihilism. Yeah, I mean, I think he was he was trained by Trithymius, right? And he was 19 years old when he wrote those books. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and there was a period, I think it was 1533 when he did the first draft, I guess, and then 
1556 or something by the time he, I forget the dates, but it was like yeah. a 30, it was like a 30 year project. Awesome, man. Yeah, that's, that's going to be excellent. Um, have you got anything else that you want to mention before we, uh, we close up? I just want to say thank you very much uh, for having me on. I love your show. I love your channel and I'm keeping, uh, you know, keeping tabs on you and all everything you got going on. And I really appreciate you asking me to come talk and thank you for the incredible conversation. Yeah. Thank, thank you, man. Um, you know, I, uh, anytime you want to have any kind of conversation, just hit me up. I, uh, a lot of what I'm doing right now is because of the relationship that you and I have, have formed. And so, sure. you know, hats off and thank you for, for all of the inspiration, man. So I, I really appreciate it. And this has been great, dude. So Thank you, brother. Let me know what you do with it and when I could see it. <laughs>